I'm Kyle. And I'm Jason. And this episode's gonna be a little bit different. So Jason, I'm always like a bit, you're a bit mysterious, right? Like, you know, what does what Jason do in his free time? What does Jason do in his free time? So you came to me last week and you say, you know what? I want to have, I'm a, I'm a member of this service. I want to have this guy on our podcast thinks he runs an interesting business. I'm like, sure, what is it? So it's not the private jet company. It's the guy who advises for private aviation. So I just want to make it clear that we've lost like 90% of our audience here. But Mr. Private Jet, why don't you introduce our upcoming guest today? I disagree that we've lost our, our audience here because this to me is a perfect example of going to the niche of niches and making what I assume is a very good living for Doug Gollin, okay? So if you've ever thought that that niche is too small, Doug pretty much has proved everyone wrong. So private aviation, the assumption is on some of the numbers that we know is that probably roughly 100,000 Americans utilize private aviation. I want to say that's it, but that's subjective. So not a big number, not, not a big search intent, you know, not a big search, not, not, you know, it's, search intent is high, obviously, but the number of people is not high. So this did not scare him off. And nothing should ever scare you off in a niche that you can monetize if you feel you have the best information, or it doesn't have to be the best. I think Doug is the best, by the way. But if you think you can contribute to a, a, a niche, you win. You've already won. It's just a matter now of how big you win within that niche. And that is what he is doing in private aviation. So in all seriousness, this is a really good interview we recorded with Doug. Really good insight on how to monetize what you think might be a small niche. And then really like this, this world of, of not just aviation, but marketing to deep-pocketed, whether it's readers, listeners, viewers, it really hammers home the point we've talked about a bunch, which is if you have the right audience, it could be worth a lot. If you have the right audience and that audience is literally worth a lot, it could be a really good media business to be in. So let's continue on. Uh, we got Doug Gollin. He is the founder and editor of privatejetcardcomparisons.com, and they are a consumer's buying guide to private aviation services. So let's continue with our theme of the podcast for the common man and get right on to our interview with Doug, which is actually very good. Okay, I want to welcome on Doug Gollin, founder and editor of PrivateJetCarComparisons.com. That is a consumer buyer's guide to private aviation services. Doug, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Thank you for uh, having me. So you are, maybe you have the most unique property of our guests so far. We're a couple of dozen episodes into this show. So why don't you tell our audience, give a little bit about your origin story, and then what led you to create uh, Private Jet Car Comparisons? Well, it was a bit of an accident. My background is in media and publishing, starting as a journalist, a reporter, and then back in the good old days where there were a lot of magazines, so back in the late 80s. And uh, I started covering the uh, airline industry back in the 80s, so that was quite interesting, you know, 22, 23 years old, and I was interviewing the CEOs of major airlines, uh, Bob Crandall, who uh, legendary chairman of American Airlines who uh, helped create the frequent flyer program and a lot of other innovations that are still around today. Um, Frank Lorenzo, who was one of the agents of change after deregulation, uh, you know, more on the cost side of the equation. So that was great, great education. It was like getting an MBA and getting paid for it. And uh, then I moved into the business side of uh, publishing, and I ended up running a group of trade publications. This is back, you know, uh, it was a weekly magazine, we, about 200 pages a week. So if you think about magazines today and how they're struggling to stay in business, uh, think about a magazine that's over 200 pages every week. And then I started, uh, I left that, I started a consumer magazine called Elite Traveler, that was basically an in-flight publication for private jets. So it was controlled circulation, distribution on uh, private jets. So that was very interesting. That was sort of my entree into, you know, how the folks on the other side of the wall lived uh, with uh, private aviation uh, and setting up the distribution with the private jet terminals and the corporate flight departments and the fractional operators and other fleet operators. 
but Lifestyle Magazine, you know, maybe a little bit like a Rob Report or something like that. Expensive watches, jewelry, you know, $20,000 a night suites. And, you know, the interesting thing was that people would call up and buy these, uh, buy these things. I remember one story from uh, Harry Winston. Uh, they had a, a lady from Texas. She liked there's like a $40,000 orange diamond or orange emerald uh, sapphire watch. And she liked it so much, she bought two of them, one for her, one for her daughter. And so I was a partner in that, uh, sold my interest uh, in uh, 2014. And uh, I knew, uh, know the, uh, the fellow who's the editor at Forbes, and they have this uh, contributor network. So he was looking for people who, you know, could, the contributor network's very interesting because they hire people who are specialists or deep knowledge in uh, niches, and he wanted uh, more coverage of private aviation. And so the genesis of private jet card comparisons is I was doing a story for uh, the Forbes website on jet cards. And as I was doing the research, and it took me about six, seven months to research it all out. I'm not sure if that says more about me than the market, but, you know, there were a lot more players than I thought. You know, I identified over 50 different companies that sold jet cards and memberships. And it was also much more complicated than I thought, you know, because you see all the brochures, they have the, you know, the puppies and dad at the kids soccer game. But when you join these programs, you're signing like 20, 30 page contracts. And so because, you know, even though my genesis was as a reporter, because I was managing businesses, you know, dealing with CFOs and investors, I started to get good at Excel. So uh, spreadsheets. So when things got too complicated for my, you know, C plus or C minus student brain for my reporter's notebook, I tend to put things into Excel spreadsheets. So as I was putting all of these things into a spreadsheet, I was like, wow, this is a lot of information. Over 65 different variables that subscribers can search for, from, you know, policy on pets to do the programs include Wi-Fi to obviously the prices, but where can you fly? And, you know, all the, all the stuff that's in the contract and so some of the uh, CEOs in the, uh, the industry who had helped me in the, st- the stories for Forbes said, what are you going to do with all this stuff now that you're done? And so a woman who used to work with me, she was uh, between jobs and uh, called her up and said, can you put a website together? And so it was a $99 WordPress website. And that was the, the birth of private jet card comparisons. And I sort of figured, you know, $250 annual subscription for, you know, the target audience who are spending 100000 to, uh, you know, millions of dollars per year to fly privately, you know, 250 bucks to save time and really be able to easily compare the programs. That probably made sense. And so that was the start in 2017, and it's grown into a very nice business. So um, no complaints. So, Doug, talk about, I think a lot of people who might start a website or a media brand, you know, think about, well, I need to get the biggest audience possible. And we've had a lot of guests come on here and talk about how how niche their target market is and why, you know, a small audience that's rightly targeted with deep pockets is better than just having a wide audience of, of people who aren't interested in buying things. But I would think, wow, the private jet market is so small, I don't even know if I can grow a brand off that. And clearly that's not the case. So talk about, including some of your background and like luxury marketing and luxury publications that it sounds like you had, like talk about you starting this, knowing that you had a big enough market and then kind of the math that went into the, okay, $250 per subscriber. How many of these do I need to get? You don't have to give your actual numbers, but like talk about how you were thinking about uh, going to market with this. Well, that's a, g- a great question because, you know, I had been, uh, I would say I a friend of mine coined the phrase an entrepreneur. So the places, the two, the two places I had worked in 28 years were both for private owners, right? So, um, and I think the good news for them is they made a lot of money and I made some money. And so uh, after I exited Elite Traveler, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do again. So a lot of this just happened organically. And because I'm a journalist or started as a reporter, you know, I like to do content. And the things I like to do less was managing financial, dealing with investors, having employees come into my office and, 
you know, tell me what was wrong and who wasn't doing what. But my true love was always reporting and writing. But, you know, it's hard to it's really hard to make a good living, you know, as a journalist, as a reporter. It's not a great, you know, there are superstars of every profession. Uh, And so the good thing with private jet card comparisons is because I like to write, I'm doing a lot of content. And, you know, Google likes content and Google likes good content. And, you know, I've learned how to structure the content, but a lot of it's in-depth. And, you know, there's a lot of clickbait stuff that you compete against. But what I found over time is by, you know, providing good content, you know, I get good rankings in Google. I also, you know, get good pickups in the media. You've been quoted in Financial Times, CNBC, um, Wall Street Journal, Rob Report. And so, you know, you get the backlinks from, you know, great credible media like that. And, you know, all of a sudden you see organic traffic. And the interesting thing with my website is really the only people who are going to come to a website called Private Jet Card Comparisons and read my content are people who are interested in private aviation. And so gets about, I think, 35, 40,000 unique visitors per month. I do the typical funnel stuff. You can sign up for a free newsletter or you could buy uh, buy right away. And, you know, it's grown, it's grown over time. This is year five, year six I'm going into, I guess. And my previous two gigs, one was sort of the trade publications I was at back in the 90s. When I got into management, we were like number seven in a field of maybe eight. It might've just been seven publications. And, you know, fortunately we ended up at the top. And then starting Elite Traveler, you know, we started from zero. And what I found is you don't have overnight successes to get to, you know, where we wanted to be was always like at year five, you started to see light at the end of the tunnel and you sort of knew it wasn't the oncoming train, but you know, you're on the right track. And then really year seven, eight, nine is when things started to go. And so when you talk about private jet card comparisons as a business, you know, I'm patient. I'm not looking for overnight success. You know, over the years, I've added features for the subscribers. I've added other content. I'm going to launch a new website next year. So, you know, the $99 WordPress website carried me a long way, but I think there's an opportunity to go to the the next level. So, and it's funny, I talked to obviously a lot of subscribers and, you know, a lot of them are very successful entrepreneurs like you guys. A lot of them are privately held businesses, you know, businesses you might not think about, anything from constructions, people who own franchises, you know, any medical parts distribution. But I also have, you know, CEOs who are CEOs of publicly traded companies, and they all tell me, you know, you're, if you're funding this yourself, you don't have investors, you're not doing a SPAC, you know, just keep doing what you're doing because... The, you you're, you probably don't want to, you know, get into all of that, that good stuff. So, yeah, you know, small business, but uh, growing. You can quickly compound your headaches with all of that stuff. Take it from firsthand experience. You, By the way, you have some heavy hitters. So on the website, you have one product, right? Is there anything besides the $250 annual subscription? And if not, you know, are you, do you think about how you might be able to, you know, further grow the business beyond that in other ways? Yeah, so it's uh, so I have basically three revenue streams. The $250 subscription, which is a consumer subscription, 12-month subscriptions. Then I also have uh, when you uh, you sign up because people who fly privately like to travel in style. So I do a weekly e-newsletter called uh, DG Amazing Experiences, which is sort of like the hotel suites and, you know, VIP tour of Egypt, you know, behind the scenes to, you know, King Tut's tomb and things like that. That comes out every Saturday. And so I get advertising in that. So I have advertising revenue from the newsletter. One thing I don't do, and I know there's a lot of like, there's a lead generation type sites. I don't sell subscriber data. I also don't accept referral fees from any of the jet companies. So I want to be neutral like Switzerland 
quantitative data. I don't make recommendations. It's just based on what you're looking for. Here are the companies that are a fit. So, but you know, people, I have companies coming to me all the time. I want to be in front of these well-to-do people who fly privately. So the advertising from the, uh, the newsletter. And then the third part of the stool is that I sell research to the jet companies. And so when you subscribe, If you want, you can fill in a form that asks for a custom analysis, which is basically us just coming back and taking your needs and filtering the database so you can see specifically which providers and programs fit your needs. And so we capture that data. Once a year, I also do a survey to subscribers. I do a donation of Ten dollars for each completed survey. There are a couple of very good charities, and then that the subscribers can choose between. And so I take that, package it all up. It's actually coming out next week. Uh, this year's edition, over two hundred pages of analysis, charts, graphics, and I sell that to the private aviation companies. So you know, if they're obviously if they're selling jet cards. It's hard to research. Obviously, ultra high net worth people don't typically pick up the phone or respond. And so, you know, I have a small media company with three revenue streams, the subscriptions, the ad revenue, and then the research. So that'll be more apparent when the new website comes out. Doug, in terms of content behind a paywall versus free you know, blog posts of that nature, how do you, what's your percentage of that on the website right now in terms of what you're publishing for free and what is put behind the paywall? So, you know, all of the data and the comparisons is behind the paywall, right? So if you really are in the buying mode, you would have to pay to subscribe. There's also some other utilitarian content that's behind the paywall. It's basically, though, if you said like post news articles, probably less than 1% is behind the paywall. That I think will change You know, having been in the media industry for 35 years, I know right now paywalls are the thing, right? But I've seen every, the big companies sort of go, you know, they all chase the same thing at the same time. So for a while it was, they all needed to do apps. And, you know, Condé Nast was doing apps, you know, Meredith was doing apps. Every one of their publications had to have an app. And three years later, they were on to something else. It's just like, you know, streaming with the big media companies was a big thing until Disney said that they had lost a billion dollars or something on it. And then all the analysts said, oh, no, no, we don't want you just doing streaming at all costs. We want you to make money. So, you know, it's I'm not really answering your question because I think it's going to be more content behind the paywall. Obviously, I want to get people to need to pay the $250. But the flip side of that is that Google likes, you know, I'm a small player. Google likes my content. So when I put it behind the paywall, if it's not searchable, that's a negative impact. So I don't have the right answer. It's something, you know, with this new website, I'll be able to play around with a little bit more easily. So you might see for like a six month period, more stuff behind the paywall. I don't have a board of directors. I'm the board of directors. So, you know, if it's not working out, all of a sudden you'll see more more stuff free. So I, I don't have the right answers. I have a couple, couple for you. So one, quick, is it just you or do you have a team? So I'm the only full-time employee. And then, you know, I have people I use on a freelance basis to help me out. I always, you know, having started and been at, you know, media companies that were somewhat substantial I marvel. I, every day I say, thank you, Bill Gates. Thank you, Steve Jobs, because this is basically a from the couch business. All I need is a laptop and an internet connection. You know, WordPress is great. And so from starting businesses and having to get money and then having to, you know, contract with printers and buy paper in advance and, you know, hiring teams, you know, all while the money is going out because you're ramping up. You know, I basically been profitable from day one. So it's a small company. I think the thing you didn't ask the question, but, you know, I have to at some point decide, do I want it to keep it continuing as a small, nice business or do I want to double down? Because I think it could be a much bigger business. You know, when you talk about you're asking a little bit before about the size of market and according to the research that's out there. Just in the U.S., there are probably about 1.5 million households that can afford to fly privately. 
There's probably, you know, around 100,000 that are engaged in private aviation, maybe a little bit more because of the past two years right now. And I'm just capturing a fraction of that. So, you know, I wake up every morning knowing there's a lot of opportunity to grow. So look, you know, for us, we made, we had a lot of success with affiliate marketing and you just said, Hey, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to refer people to the airlines that I'm, you know, kind of giving unbiased reviews of. Right. Was that a difficult choice for you? Cause I've seen, um, I use the example of like the wire cutter, which got acquired by the New York times. Now, granted, they're not as big ticket items as private flights, but you know, they're recommending products, but they, they claim at least, you know, to put this sharp firewall between, we're going to do editorial about these products and it doesn't really matter which one you buy. Cause either way, we're going to send you to Amazon or to Best Buy and we're going to get our five or 7% for the sale. So, and then the New York times buys them and, you know, blesses that uh, with their, you know, editorial stamp. It could be done. I've seen it done, but you know, talk about your decision-making with that. Cause I see your ranking for things. And, you know, my affiliate SEO mind is going, oh my God, like that's a very valuable server. Well, so I, I'm not anti-affiliate. I have an affiliate program. So I have people who are signed up as affiliates and they make a commission when, you know, I sell my $250 subscriptions. I think about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook. And I think for the first five years, they didn't take advertising you know, I've written a couple books based on my experience with marketing to ultra high net worth individuals. And I don't think ultra high net worth people like to be the product. There are some lead generation sites out there. It's interesting because, you know, it's very clear that I don't sell the, the contact information and the data, but people will call me and say, I just got four calls from four different jet companies. And I was like, well, did you sign up uh, for this other site? And they're like, maybe. And I said, well, that's why you just got the four calls. And then, you know, listen, I'm, I, I, I just don't feel like, you know, dealing with a high ticket item, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, well-to-do people that I want to get in the middle of, well, I joined this program because you know, now I found out that you got a spiff on the back end with it. And, you know, I could say anything, but, you know, I'm a small business. I don't need a billionaire or somebody who's got a floor of lawyers to tie me up with lawsuits, you know, so I, and I mean, I have business insurance and stuff like that. So I like the business where it is, you know, it's growing. I have three revenue streams between the paid subscriptions, the research and the advertising, and, you know, it's the data. So people ask me, you know, so it's down to these four companies. Who would you join? And as my message to them is, listen, I know you're not anxious to set, you know, do conference calls or sales calls with four or five jet card salespeople. But what I tell them is if you do that and it's your money, I think, you know, and what I find from subscribers is you're going to come back and make your own decision and I think it's 100%. Anyone who does that's like, well, no, I, I didn't want to do the six calls. I wanted you to just tell me two, but I'm really glad I did. Because also when you talk to salespeople, they're educating you. They're giving you their perspective on their products and their clients. And it's, it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think the best value I can create for my business is just being a fair broker being somebody that um, doesn't have a dog in the hunt. And I think also the companies, the providers, one of the reasons they give me the data is, you know, they know that, you know, I'm not favoring one company over the other. They know that just, you know, I'm, I'm very transparent, you know, about it. And so that's my business model. If someone buys me out at some point, you know, they'll have the right to do whatever they want. I think your most succinct answer there really nailed it too, was the, um, your client base has enough money where they would rather just pay for what they know is good information than get the freebie info, but which may or may not be skewed. That's a really good takeaway. Well, and the other thing is there are some places that charge you and then they sell your data. So, so Doug, to level set for our audience, to definitely do this in a quick fashion, because I know there's a lot of options. I think the introductory to private aviation for many people today has been the wheels up, you know, heavy ad spend that everyone's gone, whoa, I didn't know that this was available to me, right? So if you can, just give a quick set of options. Like there's wheels up, there's private jet cards. Like, so there's, there's fractional, there's jet cards. Just give some people the options of 
what the industry is now for private aviation? Sure, uh, great question. So if you think about accessing uh, private aviation, and Wheels Up has done a great job. You know, they started in 2013. And if you look at like the Google searches, the two most searched companies are Wheels Up and um, uh, NetJets, you know, which is Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway. There are a few options. Would I say buy the seat and jet sharing, which is, you know, if you don't need the whole plane, you know, it could either be just uh, you're traveling by yourself or you're looking for an, an uh, option that's closer in cost to flying first class on the airline. So jet sharing and that's by the seat or, for instance, wheels up will allow you once you join as a member to post your flight. And then if if we were both going um you know, in the same direction, we could correspond and we could split the costs. So that's sort of the entry level. Uh, the jet cards and the memberships, it's interchangeable. They're more marketing terms, but generally those programs, you join them, some charge a fee, some you just put a deposit down. But the benefit of uh, most of them is that when you join, you get what they say fixed or capped rates and guaranteed availability. So if I book at least 72 hours in advance on non-peak days, I have all the asterisks. I know my hourly rate for light jet is $7,500 an hour. Therefore, you know, if I'm doing a two hour flight and I book at least 72 hours in advance, you know, my flight's gonna cost 15,000 plus plus. And so sort of between that and then the, the shared stuff is what I just say on demand charter. And that's you call a broker and operator and they're going to quote the flight, you know, on a trip by trip basis. And so a lot of people who buy into the jet cards and the memberships, they start out just chartering, you know, a couple flights. But that's usually called you call a couple different uh, providers and they give you the quotes back. And then you have to look at the quotes each time because the contracts and the terms are different. And then if you're in a meeting or something, you call them back and they say, oh, that quote's no longer available because they're all based on specific planes or operators. And so it's sort of like, you know, you can cut your own lawn or you can hire someone to cut your lawn. And so when you join one of these programs with the fixed rates and guaranteed availability, now you just, you know, email or on the app or, you know, text. I want to go from Teterboro to Opelika on Friday at 4 p.m. There's six passengers. This is the catering I want. And they send you back the confirmation. So instead of, you know, being your own travel agent and spending hours going back and forth with different brokers, you have one provider. You know, you can book the flight in 60 seconds. And then above and beyond that is you have fractional ownership that typically starts at uh, 50 hours a year, that's a five-year commitment. You're buying a share of a plane. So, you know, I always tell people that's the deep end of the pool. And then people who, you know, typically if you're traveling, flying over 200, 250 hours a year, you might consider uh, full ownership. So that's sort of the, the hierarchy from full ownership to fractional to the jet cards and membership on demand. And then the last thing I would say is that I always uh, make the analogy, it's like cars in a driveway. A lot of people have multiple solutions. And so the interesting thing is I have a, a good chunk of subscribers who own their own planes because when the plane is down for maintenance or they have a light jet and now they're going out you know, cross country and they don't want to do the fuel stops, they'll buy a jet card for those specific missions. So quite a lot of options. And that's sort of what keeps me in, in business because, you know, it sounds simple until you start comparing and you get the brochures, you talk to three different salespeople. And then, you know, if you started, you know, somewhat confused after you talk to three salespeople, you're very confused. I think your answer right there just sort of showed the level of complexity and confusion. And one of the things we've always noticed is when there is confusion that's generally good for people who live on the internet, like us, because people are going to take to Google and they're going to look for things and they're looking for someone to simplify it. And, you know, in my view, just as a passing observer here, this is one of the most, you know, complex and expensive things someone can buy. And these are obviously very well-heeled clients who can afford it, but it's still a large expense and getting it right so is super important. One of the things for me when I joined Doug's site that really made it easy 
for me to join was I saw that Doug made himself available for a phone call. And I think that is something that, one, I was surprised, but also like, wow, this is good. Because I had, as we heard in the beginning of, of our show here today, Doug, in an efficient manner, described the market. So someone who doesn't, and it sounded complicated, so someone who doesn't know, there's so many questions. So knowing that someone's going to take a half an hour out of their day, you know, post-membership, obviously, but that's like, it's like, great. Like, even if I don't know where to go here, I know I'm going to get guidance. And that's just an easy way to hit the buy now button. So for those folks who are interested in private aviation, you know, <laughs> know that. The second point, and this might be a little bit of a wacky question, but the information you're getting, the conversations you're having, you have to be the ultimate like customer rep consultant person for these for these aviation companies. Is it at times difficult to maybe have a conversation with someone like in, in the executive suite who's trying to kind of pull information from you and you're like, well, hey, you know, I can give you some, but I also do offer this the service or the survey that I ask people to pay for. Do you, do you find yourself in those conversations? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for the $250, you know, I would imagine that anyone who has a jet card is subscribing to it because it's great market intelligence to what the market is doing, right? You know, everyone else's pricing and policies. And I think that's a good thing for the market, right? And then the research, you know, if they want to buy it, they buy it. If they don't, they don't. I worked for a guy who's made a hell of a lot of money, excuse the language, uh, selling research. And I think it was always uh, struck me as a much better business than my publishing background. Uh, but what I understood from the research business is if you put out good research, the renewal rate is usually in the 90 percent range. And so, you know, as I mentioned, I'm not like, a, you know, a need to do this by this first half of next year. This is the second year I'm doing the research. The market to buy the research is probably in the thousands. So, you know, in five years, if I have a couple hundred people who subscribe to it, that's good for me. So, you know, I don't feel like, you know. Sorry to interrupt. Just wanted, yeah, no, have you ever thought about selling that research for like an extreme premium to the companies? You know, because 250 is for the, you know, consumer, the, the well-heeled consumer wants to fly. But the companies, I'm guessing, will pay tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. So and I'm sorry. And to be clear with the, the research, the, the 200 plus page report is $4,750. There it is. Nice. Nice. That's the B2B product, right? We need a B2B product, Jason. We, we, we need one of those. Yeah, we do. We do. We absolutely do. So you you have a lot of subscribers. You have a lot of email addresses. You talked about trends earlier. Uh, one of the trends you know, we're seeing, we're experiencing, we're, we're launching it. We've launched our own newsletter in our field. But how important is it you know, to have those addresses, those not just people who are subscribing, be able to communicate and get in their inbox, which is so important. And then where do you think that trend, do you think is that that's one of those trends now that is just sort of like a wave? That's the, that's the wave where journalists are going to Substack and stuff like that? Or do you see that sticking around longer? In terms of like email, e-newsletters and things like that? Yeah, I mean, they're really experiencing a resurgence right now across, you know, kind of all, all verticals. I would say, you know, listen, I think, you know, it goes back to the content. Uh, one of the things I notice is, so the website, the traffic's probably 50-50 split between uh, smartphones, uh, tablets, and, you know, desktop, laptop. The emails, it's 90% plus on uh, smartphones. And so there was a statistic, I think, uh, six, seven years ago that the average CEO checks their email. I want to say it's like 100 plus times a day. And, you know, whenever I say that to somebody, they're like, oh, my CEO checks his phone 100 times a you know a minute or 100 times an hour. And so I think by having a newsletter like I do to somebody's email address, you know, if it's something that they're interested in, you know, they'll click it open. And, you know, that's the weekly e-newsletter. It's not a bunch of links. The core content is in the newsletter. So I don't use it as a tool to drive traffic to the website. I use it as a service to the person who's receiving it so that if they don't have an internet connection or whatever, they can still read the content when they open the newsletter because I think people love instant gratification and you see stuff that's of interest to you. If you can't access it right away, you know there's a good chance you forget about it and you move on to something else. 
So I think, you know, one of the things that I've found successful in terms of, you know, the travel content that I do in the newsletter and works then for the advertisers as well is instead of having like a little teaser and click here for more content, the core content that they opened the newsletter for, whatever the headline was, it's 100% there on that newsletter. So as soon as they open that, you know, email, they can can go through it. I'm not sure if that answered the question, but that's that's what I'm doing. No, I think it does. I think it explains that captive. One, being able to cut to their phone when you choose to. And then two, having them captive. And I would agree with that. You're filling the whole screen and they're kind of in email mode and, and they're scrolling your content. I was looking at your Twitter followers. Like, you have some heavy hitters who follow you. So you got a pretty interesting uh, client base. You know, I, I, I'm on Twitter, but I haven't looked who follows me. So I'll have to ask you uh, after we're done uh, <laughs> who's there. Prepare to be very happy with your followers. Oh, okay, good, good. Some serious names there. Steve Case, who founded AOL, follows you. So I was like, okay, pretty good. Pretty good. As of this morning, I haven't been uh, suspended from Twitter. So. Very, oh, the, <laughs> oh, boy, that leads into a good... Go ahead, Kyle. I know where you want to go with that. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, as a quick aside here, it may be not our main topic, but it's actually topical having you on this week because it is sort of this weird, unexpected uh, intersection of media and aviation. So I saw you did write for Forbes, I believe, this week. But give just a quick summary of the Elon Musk private aviation thing and kind of your take on it. Because I think a lot of people probably look at it as a very self-serving thing for him, but there are a lot of people who fly private. A lot of those people are very important and might want to keep a little bit of a lower profile. Just summarize the story and your thoughts on it briefly. Yeah, so until until uh, 2000, when they switched to this ADSB tracking, the FAA had set up a, a way that if you owned a private jet, you could block the tail number. And so that was using FAA data. It couldn't be tracked. You could see the, the tail, but it would just, you know, there wasn't information about where they were going. And so uh, when they went to this new technology, and I'm not a technical person, but all of a sudden, these people who have, I guess it's you get from Amazon, so it's, it sort of reminds me of like, you know, you saw like... Uh, what was it back in the, the World War II or something? These ham radio operators are right, you know, and after the Cold War, trying to pick up radio signals in the Eastern Europe uh, and things like that. But they're they're able to get data. They share the data. And so even if you had your plane blocked and this was congressional legislation that mandated the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, allow you to block your tail there became a workaround. And there are some ways to block it, but it's not, it's not perfect. And so, you know, the industry associations, obviously, I think part of their uh, rationale for um, blocking the tails was more like, if you remember the movie Wall Street and Bud Fox, you know, whereas, you know, Teldyne paper in Pennsylvania, that this, you know, if you can track people's private jet movements, you can see maybe companies that they're looking to buy and things like that. So stock manipulation, corporate espionage, and certainly safety and security. And so, so that was sort of the setup. And then, uh, you know, the, the fellow Jack Sweeney, who's a college kid, sort of did what other people were doing, but he did it in a public way because he started, you know, a Twitter feed. He automated it. So he was tracking about 25 or 30 of these people from, you know, Jay-Z and Oprah to Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. And, you know, where he first came on to the news was Elon Musk, I guess, direct messaged him about his Twitter account and said, I'll pay you 5,000 bucks to take it down. I feel like it's a safety threat. You know, there are crazy people with guns. I don't want to get shot at. And so he came back and said, well, I'll take it down if you give me a Tesla. 5,000 bucks isn't good enough. And so that sort of began the media attention. So nobody knew about this stuff until no one was really paying attention but, you know, you had like a great media story, college kid versus, you know, one of the richest guys in the world. And, you know, the college kid negotiating back and forth. And I, I think he cut a deal with more Cuban. So he took more Cuban stuff off. But, you know, the point and where it struck a chord with me was the safety issue. And so if you fly privately, you know that relatively easy to access these private jet terminals. 
you know, obviously wealthy people, ultra high net worth, you know, I'm not ultra high net worth, but, you know, they all have to have their security. And we saw that Elon Musk said that there was some type of incident with his kid in a car in L.A. So, you know, I often think if I win the lottery, you know, geez, you know, and a lot of people knew it would be uncomfortable because places I go walking and running every day, nobody knows me and nobody cares about me. So, you know, I understand those people have a different issues. But the other thing that I was concerned about is the people who work at these airports. So the the people who work in the private jet terminals, the flight crews that are going through, the guys and the, the women who work on the ramp, the other people who are in the terminals. You know, you go to a terminal and there are the drivers who are there waiting to pick up their customers. And if you think about the unfortunate place we are in society today, you know, that's a risk. And what uh, Jack Sweeney was doing, um, and he's sort of been disingenuous about it, is he wasn't just saying Elon Musk's jet landed in San Jose two hours or two days ago. He was broadcasting, he still is, you know, obviously, Elon Musk's jet just left Austin, Texas, headed to San Jose. It will land in San Jose in two and a half hours. And so, you know, that's sort of, you know, that's for people who are high profile and maybe people who want to harm them or their families, it certainly gives them more information than I think should be out there. I actually suggested, I interviewed Jack. He afterwards, he, after I wrote my story, he blocked me on his Twitter account. But I, I suggested, I said, you know, and his father, by the way, is a mechanic uh, for an air, uh, aviation company. So I suggested that, you know, maybe he should just delay, delay the reports. And, you know, he sort of, he, listen, he's a college kid. He said, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And then a, a day later, I read an interview with another media where he said he wasn't going to do that. And so that's my issue with it. I think, you know, I understand the corporate espionage stuff. I don't think that's that's a concern, you know, for, you know, that's the concern of the jet owner. You know, if they don't want to be their whereabouts tracked, charter jets, get a share from NetJets or FlexJet, they're a workaround. So my thing was more around the the safety and, you know, in addition to the the principle, the the ultra high network, high profile person, the Oprah, the Mark Zuckerberg, you know, it's all the other people who are at that terminal and airport when some crazy person shows up. So I don't have a problem with what Elon Musk said about, you know, doxing people's locations. I don't think it's the right thing to do. I don't think it's free speech. You know, you're not allowed to yell fire in a theater. You know, people keep talking about public information. Well, I can buy a laser pointer, you know, at Home Depot. It's still illegal for me to point a laser into an airplane, right? That's a federal crime. I think, you know, hopefully the industry is working to get some legislation that will make it criminal to, you know, to do that. But, you know, right now we're sort of in a uh, in a place where you can get the information. And if you want to put it out there, unless somebody like uh, Elon Musk and Twitter say, we're not going to allow you to put this information out there in real time. You know, it's going to be out there. And so at some point, something bad will happen. And then all of a sudden, there'll be a rush to have legislation. How do we prevent this? So uh, right now, it's preventable. That's my position. Obviously, don't want to spend too much time on this because we're here to talk about privatejetcardcomparison.com. But the unfortunate part of this, and to your point, Doug, is, is the political climate. And your response is filled with rational thought. And in today's world, that there simply is no place for rational thought. And people on each side, radical left, radical right, I hate I using the word radical, far left, far right, they will always find a way to defend or come up against you know, rational thought. And yes, this is safety. But to your point, all we hear about is, oh, but this is public information. And and it is and it isn't. Like, it's amazing how quickly we can see someone be on one side of the fence because it's supported by the people they like, and then be on the other side of the fence because it's hated by the people they hate. This is just something where it's even more concerning when we get a kid in college, you know, I, I have a, a son who's going to be 14 and, and I see how he operates and I see his friends and I hear their conversations. And I think to myself, my goodness, I could not imagine one of these, him, his friends in college, utilizing the information they have, knowing how powerful Twitter is and just not grasping 
why they need to be careful with this information or why they need to probably ask their parents or somebody else like, hey, like, how should I handle this? They love the fame. They just haven't realized yet that the bank doesn't accept retweets and likes because in their mind, that is the only currency that matters in this world, you know, and it's not until they figure it out later on. So it's almost like we're dealing with an irrational human being in college. And part of it's not really his fault because he doesn't know the real world yet. But someone has to say, hey, bud, you know, this is a safety issue. And I think you tried to do that. I guess I won't say I won't characterize it. But after I wrote a story about a month ago, an update on it, because he was coming into the news, maybe it was before Elon uh, uh, bought Twitter, but I got a uh, tweet. You know, I, I tweeted the story after I wrote it on Forbes. And actually, his father tweeted back at me that it's the First Amendment and that basically I was a tool of the industry and nobody was going to shut his kid up. So <laughs> the apple doesn't fall far. <laughs> uh, you know, he's obviously a smart kid. You know, I'm sure he'll be going to big and better things. And, you know, um, my only hope for him and the whole thing is that that he goes on to big and better things and that I don't know what the relationship was with Musk, you know, saying with his, you know, kid being accosted in the car. And it's, you know, he wasn't clear on what that link was to the, the jet stuff. There didn't really appear to be any, but what he's putting out there is setting it up for somebody who's mentally unstable and has an issue with one of these people he's tracking to go there and do harm and, you know, if that ever happened, he will regret the day that he did it, you know? So, and I'll just, uh, just as a quick side story, probably a year or two after the interesting thing, and this goes back to, I guess, tracking is, um, and I think uh, Apple has prevented a lot of it, but you could, the, one of the email services I use, you can actually see where people opened it, right? And it's to some degree, it's, I guess, with server. So it's, but all of a sudden, I think it was in like New Mexico, I saw on a Saturday morning, Pop, 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 you know, with more more opens uh, in New Mexico than typical, right? Or maybe it was a Sunday. I forget what it was. And I looked and I looked at who these people were and they were like, you know, C-level executives from some big tech companies and other uh, digital companies. And I like Googled right away, you know, a couple of their names. And it turned out there was at the Hyatt in Albuquerque, uh, there was this huge tech conference going on. So all I could figure is that when my email came out, a bunch of these guys were sitting in the audience and whoever was speaking wasn't captive enough. And I think this was about like the top suites of Tahiti, the top overwater bungalows. So these folks must have been sitting there. They, they're looking top over what the, the most luxurious bungalows in Tahiti versus whatever the person up on the dais was speaking about. And they decided that they wanted to read about Tahiti. Doug, you're telling me you know which CEOs read your post from which conference, but you don't know who follows you on Twitter. I have a, I have a hard time. <laughs> That's good. It's funny. I just, you know, Twitter, you know, I've never, and I guess what I should say is, you know, I do track where business comes from. And at Twitter, I've just not seen a, as much traction as I have with other stuff. So I could tell you like my Google AdWords and all that good stuff. But now you've got me going. I'm going to be looking at Twitter as soon as we get off. That's probably a really good spot to end it here, too. I mean, Doug, why don't you tell every to all the listeners you know, where they can find you? Plug away here all, all you want. So the website is called Private Jet Card Comparisons. So an end, uh, S at the end of comparisons.com. And it's a $250 subscription. The services you get, the, the database is constantly updated. I just did 95th update of the year. There's over 40,000 data points I'm capturing, 65 different things that you can compare. You know, the biggest mistake I find people to say is, you know, I joined this program because my buddy at the club told me it was great. And it was great for your buddy because of where he or she was, you know, are flying, but your flying needs are different. You know, the interesting thing is a lot of times people, when they do the custom analysis, they'll say, why wasn't company X or Z on your analysis? And I'm able to tell them based on quantifiable data, they weren't on because of you wanted this and they don't offer this or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And people really appreciate that, you know, so it's educational. And uh, 
the services you had mentioned uh, about me being available, you know, I'm available as much or as little as they want. I've never had to tell anyone, you know, stop calling me. People tend to hit me up when they're in the buying mode. And then I don't hear from them for, you know, till they're buying again. Uh, but I appreciate the feedback from subscribers. It's valuable to me. And then, you know, it's also like you guys talking to people who are really successful. I've gotten great advice and suggestions from subscribers. So, you know, my subscribers are almost like my advisory board. And then I also get nice holiday gifts. Last year, I got some lobsters. One of my subscribers has invested in a company with lobsters. I've gotten wine. I've gotten walnuts. One of my subscribers is a big walnut farmer, you know, so. He's the, he's the guy who owns all walnuts. <laughs> yeah. You know, really great people like you guys, you know, successful business entrepreneurs. And I think they appreciate that I'm able to educate them a little bit about something that they're spending a lot of money on and is not necessarily, you know, uh, transparent. And then, you know, a lot of people say you should increase your subscription price, which is something I always think about. But you know, it's $250 for 12 months. So please come to privatejetcardcomparisons.com and subscribe. And, you know, I, I the, the adage is if you love what you do, you've never had a job. I've never had a job. So the more subscribers you can bring, you know, it keeps me happy. So thank you for the opportunity to uh, share with you guys and your audience. Can I just ask you one more question about paid ads? Yeah. You mentioned you do paid ads at the end and you have a, you're selling a pretty high, you know, a reasonably high price subscription. Just talk about how that's worked for you. I think that's really interesting. So, you know, most of the action is in the newsletter, right? So there's a website called DG Amazing Experiences where, you know, all the content from the, the travel content goes, uh, but it's a low traffic website. You know, most people are reading the stuff. They'll go to the website if they want to see something. So I have seven ad spots and I'm sold out. So I think I charge a fair price. Everybody who's advertised or advertises, you know, has renewed year in, year out. Some of them have been there for four or five years. They're targeted towards, you know, people who can see a return on investment from not, you know, necessarily, you know, thousands of sales. I have a yacht broker. I've got a, a company that does villa rentals in Los Cabos in Mexico. Fabulous Villas, five-star, former uh, Rosewood executives. So it's not just the villas. You get five-star butler service, you know, training. So companies that, you know, are synergistic with the audience. But, you know, I guess a fair price because they signed up. It's good for me. Um, and uh, so far, you know, Knockwood. Uh, they, and the other one, Wynn Resorts, uh, Wynn Las Vegas, which came uh, during COVID, you know, when I think they were looking for, you know, when people started traveling, they were traveling privately and private flyers tend to uh, spend a good deal of money. And it's a great, it's where I stay at the Encore. So, you know, I, I was a customer also, a small customer, but, you know, there are also uh, companies that I think do a good job. So I, you know, I don't endorse advertisers, but I also wouldn't take advertisements from companies that I didn't think uh, were a good fit for my subscribers. Do you run your own ads on Google to promote the subscription? Yeah, so we do Google AdWords. Yeah, it's a, that's always a fun game to play, Google AdWords. <laughs> I assume you get a good control on that too. So that's oh, you know, sometimes you think you're doing well and then, I don't know, it changes. You know, I don't spend a ton of money on Google AdWords. You know, if there's a guru out there that wants to give advice, you know, I'm always happy to, I'm happy to learn. Like I said, I was a, a C minus student, so I've done pretty well, I guess, for, you know, based on how little I applied myself when I had the opportunity to learn uh, back in high school and college. We appreciate having you on, Doug. It's uh, our audience loves to hear someone being able to, you know, to dominate a niche that you certainly are. And monetizing it is the whole idea of our, uh, of our podcast. So we really enjoyed having you on. And hopefully maybe sometime in the future, we'll have you on again uh, to talk about the expansion of the business. Well, thank you very much. Happy holidays. And if you make it down to, it's not sunny today, but if you come down to Miami, we'd love to uh, get together in person. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. All right, so that was Doug Gollin of PrivateJetCardComparisons.com. My very favorite part of that interview was the fact that Doug could literally tell us which 
major CEOs were reading his email and dreaming about their water vacation, uh, over water bedroom vacation, while sitting at a conference in New Mexico. You talk about knowing your audience, knowing data, that's a, uh, that's a great, great example. He's the wily veteran. He's the end of the career lefty that comes out of the bullpen in the postseason and wins you a World Series. That to me is Doug Gollin. Like he has been around, he knows everybody, he knows how to win, and he's providing great information to a, a very rich audience uh, of people who are ready to spend, you know, a shit ton of money. Yeah. And when I, you know, when I first saw 250 a year in the world of most like media subscriptions, you're like, oh, that's a lot. And then you do the math, you know, 20 something a month, whatever. Okay. Not that bad, but it's still generally high compared to most like content businesses we talk about. You see like 999 subscription a month is, is kind of the top end hundred dollars a year. But then you're thinking, you know, well, he could charge two or three X and I'm not smart enough, didn't go to business school, but I know there are those charts and I don't know what they're called. I'm sure some listener can correct us where you can, where it intersects the volume of customers and the price. And there's some point, there's some point there that is the optimal point. Obviously the lower price, more customers, the higher price, fewer, but there's that optimal point where if you price it just right, you'll maximize the revenue. And I'm willing to bet that with, with his audience, he could slide a little bit further up that line on the price point. Maybe you lose 10, 12% of your paying customers, but you increase the revenue from each one of those by 30, 40, 50%. You know, $499 doesn't seem out of the cards for people who are spending and, you know, Notice from talking to you, lots of money just to get into these things, let alone actually getting the wheel, wheels off the ground. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I, to our audience, yeah, when you go to the site, you'll see it. And Doug makes it clear, you know, they are redoing the site. This is something that he you know, started, I want to say at least six years ago now, with a $99 WordPress theme. But Kyle and I talk about this all the time. Like, you cannot let some of these optics of a website or some stop you. Like, he really is not focusing on SEO, like in some major way, right? The, the site, it works, but he obviously is going to update. It's not the greatest looking of, of websites, but he has the data. He has the information that a rather wealthy group of people with unbelievably high search intent is looking for. I mean, that is it. That is what you are looking for. And we are seeing this now, and Kyle brought this up during the show, I believe this is where we are seeing this massive takeoff with newsletters again, because people are seeing, wow, if I have it, if I know this group and I can consolidate this into a very easy to find right into your inbox delivery system, something we've all known with email for years, but I can make it look good, easy, concise, and here it is. And you know, we use Beehive for our newsletter. It is becoming hugely successful because of the email delivery to our phones, everything's on the phone, but we don't want to go to the websites necessarily because we don't know the user experience we're going to get on websites. With Beehive and with a lot of these other newsletter systems, we now know, Substack, whatever, we now know what we're going to get. And dominating a niche has never been easier if you want to put the work in. That's a great point. Let me see if I could formulate my like follow-on thought here because I got a lot bouncing around in my head right now. But what I think we're seeing is the future of a quote-unquote media company. And, you know, if you just take it back, you know, 50 years ago, it was the newspaper, it was the radio. You got a handful of centralized organizations had the infrastructure to put stuff out. And as the internet came along, this is earth shattering for no one listening to this, but as the internet came along, the tools to publish that became easier and easier and easier. But still, those things, I'd say, you know, late 90s, early 2000s through 2010, 2015, maybe even, largely resembled the same operation, where it was a team of reporters or content creators writing about something that they weren't necessarily in. So that it was still the same construct. You just had, it was a, the barrier to entries were lower, the formats were different, but it was the same idea. I think what we've really seen over the last like five to seven years, and it's really exploded now, maybe COVID forced this along, is you're having people that are actually, and Doug is a, you know, trained as a reporter, but he's been in this business a long time. But you now have people who are actually in the fields that they are covering. You know, if you take something like the All In podcast, you have literal billionaires who are sitting there talking about the news that in some cases they are involved in. And, you know, that's just a, one example. You have people on YouTube, you have, stick with the aviation theme, you have airline pilots who are actually breaking down incidents 
that have happened, you know, with near misses or crashes or whatever. And they're pilots, you know, who knows it better? So you have people that are in the spaces be able to be their own media company. That's one. Two is the construct where you just need to set up something that looks like a newspaper, but on the internet, i.e. a website, and then sell some form of advertising. Sure, that's one business model, but I think Doug just explained it. I think our past get uh, Lexi Grant from They Got Acquired explained it really well is sure, there's always advertising. You have eyeballs, there's always advertising, but then you have data, you have consumer consulting, you have events, and you can, the modern media business, a good one, could be so targeted at a niche that you could do a lot more than just selling ads, and you can have literally this one-to-one relationship with your audience that, you know, Doug had with you. I mean, that's how he got on this podcast. It's, it's really, truly impressive. I think to, to give a little bit behind the veil, behind the scenes, so I think people in general sometimes think, or a lot of times think, that they're not worthy of being the expert quote, expert in an industry. You know, there's plenty of people out there who know more than me, you know, like I don't want, and I think, and Kyle behind the scenes has pushed this between us, like for our talents and and what we know and our knowledge saying like, hey, you know this really well and I know that really well. Like we need to go out there and push forth with this knowledge that we have. Because I was the person I just described, like, yeah, I know, I know a lot about this, but I don't think like I'm the quote, expert on it. You don't have to be the expert. You just have to be one of the experts. You know, your personality can come through differently than someone else who is the expert, but they might be dry as can be. You know, there's, there's plenty of room for everyone in a niche. Whatever you know, whatever gets your juices flowing, run with that, you know, and slowly but surely, brick by brick, you're going to build an audience and then you'll know how to properly monetize that audience. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. You don't have to be the expert. You just have to be an expert or knowledgeable about something. And you're you're instantly ahead of 95% of the people who are consuming it and looking for that. And there, and Doug, actually, Doug probably is the expert in private yeah, aviation. Yeah, Let's assume there's five other Dougs out there. They're not doing what he's doing, right? And he's the guy who said, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm sure there's other people who've covered that industry or, or in the industry or if they've tried 18 of these services because they're stupid wealthy, right? And they could probably provide the same information, but he's like, you know, I'm going to be the guy who does it. What Another thing here that stood out to me, you mentioned, you know, he might not be going for all the traditional SEO tactics. And, you know, if you search buying a private jet card, which I imagine is a pretty, like, chef's kiss of a term in this space, he has the Google snippet for that. Frequently asked questions about how jet cards work, and boom, there he is, number one in the snippet. And I checked a few others that he has on his uh, resources at the top of his page, some of these like tentpole evergreen articles he has, and uh, they rank really well. And you know, my lies are like affiliate, oh my God, like it's gotta be like a $10,000 CPA on some of these. But that's the point, right? I, I, we didn't ask him like pinpoint, but I don't think Doug is sitting there at like, SEM rush and going what to go after. He's just making good content, you know, and Google is putting it where it's supposed to be because they see the good content, right? So like that is the rule. Make good content about a subject. Google will find you, you know, and so hence he is there. But I am with you. I will tell you, when I found Doug's site, privatejetcardcomparisons.com, when I found his site, the first thing. What were you typing? How do I get to Wyoming this week? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I forget. My jet keeps canceling on me, damn it. I think I was, I think it was something like private jet FAQs or something like that. Or like, it was something pretty, I might've been like a best private jet review, something like that probably is what I searched. But my brain went right where yours went, Kyle. And I'm sure this is going to happen, right? You know, I was like, oh my God, like you could take this and then you just have like, Wheels up, you know, fly XO and, you know, take the next two, you know, private aviation companies. And it's just like, what do they offer? And here's the price. And, you know, you, you set up your referral, you know, process. I mean, we're literally just giving a listener probably what is the equivalent of a $10 million idea if they can set it up properly. But the chances of them ranking number one or number two for some of these things are probably fairly low. Because Doug's got the market corner on his experience and his content information. But being number three may not be the worst thing in the world <laughs> for such a high search intent. But something tells me, you know, Doug's not worried about competition. This is, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's going to enjoy the ride here for a great small niche, high return, you know, monetization with his website. Well, real quick, I asked him at the end about 
paid ads. And what I meant is he's got this, you know, relatively high ticket subscription. You could probably run paid ads and just make sure your your cost to acquire is less than the cost of subscription. It's pretty straightforward. And he sort of and he talked about his advertising in the newsletter, and he sort of hand waved the paid ads part. But I just Googled best private jet services, right? Which is I gotta imagine is a pretty popular term. So, you know, he's tinkering, I guess, but he is in between. These are the ads you get. Wheels up, Mercury Jets, privatejetcarcomparisons.com, and then NetJets. So he's right up there spending with the big boys for some of these premium terms, which is which is really interesting. But I agree with you on the on the organic search thing. Look, I'm not like a, an SEO guru. Like you know, I don't even have an SEM rush account. I use like the simplest one that you can kind of just get a sense of the volume and you take care of a lot of that in our business. But, you know, it's always been my view and Google is just constantly pushing towards eat, you know, this authority thing. And it's so clear he has authority. And you don't need to play all the SEO games. You just set up the basic structure so Google can ingest it and understand what the content is about. And as time goes on, they're getting better and better about understanding what is truly the authoritative source in that space. And I only imagine some of the AI technology that's out there now will do two things. One, will probably give Google better tools for their algorithm to really decide what was the source of information, what has authority. And two, you're going to have all sorts of AI content coming on the Google, and this real battle will play out between how well Google can detect that and, I don't want to say suppress it, but rank it properly against someone who's got a wealth of knowledge until the AI gets smarter and then it's just smarter than Doug and the rest of us, and then we're all fucked. Yeah, and it takes over Google, and Google doesn't know it was taken over by the AI. Yeah. Good stuff. Good interview. You're off to Wyoming. Are you uh, you flying private? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to do that off the Jackson Hole for the uh, for Christmas, and uh, that's going to be interesting. So uh, that's a guaranteed white Christmas out there because they get like 500 inches of snow. But like it could also be like negative five at night. So dragging a soon-to-be 14-year-old out there for five days will be... Uh, Always something else. Well, we'll see if one of our listeners can track your jet on Twitter. Let's <laughs> hope. All right. Thanks for listening. If you lo- oh, if you like this show and you enjoy this, make sure that you tell exactly two friends because we're all about exponential growth here. So you tell two friends and well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know how these things go. That's it. What else should they do? We actually got a couple of reviews this week on iTunes or podcast, whatever it is now. Yeah, we did. We greatly appreciate appreciate those. So please, you know, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, please feel free to give us uh, a review. Five stars would be great. If you want to give us four with a little reason why it could improve, we'll, we also take that too. Thanks for listening. 